Thanks, Jess, for that Bible reading. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope everyone is uh, doing well this morning in the uh, coldness. Uh, well, we come to our final sermon of our series on Jonah and Nahum. I hope you've all survived my little experiment. You can let me know, honestly, what you feel about this. But we'll be going back to our normal sermon series um, from next week onwards. Uh, please keep, do keep your Bibles open. Maybe keep a finger on Jonah as well, as we'll be sort of uh, touching on that a little bit. How about I pray before we start? <clears throat> Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the richness of your word with all its variety, um, with all its vivid imagery. And so once again, Lord, will you help us to hear, to feel, to see all that you want us to hear, feel, and see through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so last time, um, a couple of weeks ago because I was sick last week, uh, we looked at chapters 2 and 3 of Nahum. Uh, we saw that God not only condemns Nineveh to utter military defeat, but maybe surprising to some of us is that God is actively mocking He's taunting Nineveh as their destruction looms. And we got a taste, a little bit of a taste, of why God's intense anger is actually a good thing, right? Seeing just a glimpse of the evil acts, the cruelty of the Assyrians, we want a God who cares. We want a God to be angry, to put this evil regime to an end. But the question that might be hanging over our heads is, well, how do we reconcile that with the side of God that we know and love so well, that we are most comfortable with, right? Our God who is merciful, the one who sent Jesus to die for our sins. Our God, as we saw in Jonah, who is slow to anger, abounding in love, full of mercy and compassion. How does that fit in? How, how is that compatible with the God that we saw last week? Well, let's have a look, because God will answer that for us in chapter 1, verse 2. Oops, my bad, I didn't turn this on. Yep, thank you. Uh, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, straight up, let me ask you guys, where have we seen verse 3 before? Not a rhetorical question, but where have we seen verse 3 before? Sorry? In Jonah, yep. In what context does that come in, Jonah? What, what, what is, uh, how does that come up in Jonah? Does anyone remember? Jonah is quoting a part of scripture. Does anyone remember? Exodus, yes, Exodus 34. So uh, Moses's, uh, well, not God's revelation of who he is before Moses as he passes by, right? It's from Exodus 34, right? Um, and verse 3 is exactly the attributes of God that Jonah conveniently leaves out. Do you, do you guys remember that? So Jonah 
quotes almost verbatim God's self-declaration of himself, but Jonah leaves out this bit, right? Jonah is accusing God of saying, you are not living up to who you said you were, right? As God spares Nineveh from destruction that they deserved, Jonah accuses himself of being untrue to God's declaration of himself. And so notice here in these verses the repetition of the Lord. In just two verses, we see the Lord appear five times. Now, every time we see the word the Lord in capital letters in our English Bibles, uh, it refers to God's personal name that he reveals to Moses uh, and Israel, right? The Jews don't even want to say God's name out loud out of fear, out of respect of how holy that name is. And so instead, they, they might say Adonai or the Lord or Hashem, the name. And so by repeating the Lord, the Lord, the Lord here in these verses, it makes clear that what's at stake here is God's name, God's honor, God's reputation. So maybe in light of Jonah's accusation that we've seen before, maybe this is now God setting the record straight. This is who I am. This is who the Lord is. But just taking these two verses alone, we need to just stop and make sure we don't misunderstand what they're saying about God. Because there are two words here describing God that we might find a bit off-putting, right? The Lord is a jealous God. And also repeatedly, the Lord is one who takes vengeance. But we don't like these words, right? They, aren't they very negative words? They don't have negative connotations. Uh, so let's just consider these words first. The first, the word jealous. Because we might even use the word jealous and envious interchangeably, right? Uh, meaning someone who is like lusting after someone or something that's not theirs. Um, but jealousy, especially in the Bible, is actually quite different to envy, right? Envy is being discontented, being resentful about what someone else has, but jealousy is the emotion of concern or even anger over some sort of wrong that is rightfully yours, right? So we might think of a, a jealous husband who is insecure or controlling, right? Maybe a man who doesn't want their wife to have any male friends or something like that. But in a positive sense, it's actually right for a husband to be jealous when he finds out that his wife has been cheating on him. Or like vice versa, if a, a wife is right to be jealous of her husband who has cheated on her. So perhaps here, God is jealous for his own people as Israel's cities lie in ruins, her people scattered. Maybe God is jealous for his own namesake, as we will see in the following verses as well. But then we have the word vengeance. And again, we might think of people filled with this uncontrollable rage, like violence, right? We might think of this exaggerated picture of people trying to pay back tenfold the evil that was done to them. But here, again, we need to take into the context, right? The word vengeance, particularly when it's paired with God, it's not about repaying evil with more evil, but it describes God's unswerving commitment to justice. It's about making sure that those who commit evil against others will get what they deserve. So we saw that so vividly last, last time, didn't we? As we looked at the last two chapters of Nahum. But it also applies to God's people too, right? When God is described as being a jealous and avenging God in relation to his people, 
not only does it speak about his restoration, his covenant, his faithfulness towards his people when they are being oppressed, but also justice, God's vengeance, is also judging God's own people when they have broken their part of the covenant. And so both these traits, jealousy, a God of vengeance, yes, when it's used to describe humans, it's usually to describe our excess in our sinfulness. But when it comes to describing God, it brings out God's holiness and His righteousness. But of course, as you know, in the Old Testament, we we don't just have a bunch of theological, concise statements about God's character, but we now move to a grand spectacle, a powerful picture of God's wrath. Uh, In a way, these verses speak for themselves, don't they? So vivid is the description of God's power. Clouds are but the dust of His feet. Mountains quake, the hills melt away. But it's even more so in the ancient world because making the, the sea dry, does anyone, does anyone know what the picture of um, the sea represents in, in those ancient times, in ancient Near Eastern culture? Does anyone know? What does the sea represent? Sorry? Chaos? Yeah, well done, Jane. And anything else? Yep, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So uh, chaos is definitely one of them. Uh, evil, uh, it's a, an uncontrollable power that cannot be tamed, right? And yet, God rebukes the sea and it's completely dried up. Think about creation, right? The spirit hovers over the water. So it's this idea of chaos, void, formless, just chaos, and then God speaks order into existence. Again, we have other descriptions that, that might just, you know, not really mean much to us. But Bashan, Carmel, Lebanon, fading and withering away. These are the places that in the ancient world was well known to be the most fertile, the most lush places in the world back then. All the best trees, the cedars of Lebanon grew there. They had grand fields. The cows of Bashan were known to be super fat because of how rich all the produce were there. But see, God's wrath can turn even the beauty, the richness of Bashan, Carmel, Lebanon into a wasteland. And in the face of that, <coughs> excuse me, a question. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? Well, the answer should be obvious, right? No matter how powerful your kingdom is, no matter how big your army is, you have no chance if you come up on the wrong side of God's fury. But the next few verses might be, again, unexpected for us today. Because the Lord is good. (laughs) The Lord is good. A refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. And we might be thinking, man, that's a completely different change of tone here, isn't it? The Lord is good. Now, again, we, we, we saw a part of that last time, didn't we? God's judgment is a, a good thing, we saw already. But here, the goodness seems to be a more personal. Goodness not just in the abstract, as in God is a righteous and just God, but you can imagine this picture of God like He's a tender, gentle mother, right? Caring for the newborn. But if we think this is an isolated event, it's not. Because throughout the chapter... 
we see that God is actually constantly flip-flopping between these two tones, right? Verse 8 immediately turns back to condemning God's enemies. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Their evil plots will come to an end. A picture of being entangled in thorns, drunk from wine, consumed dry stubble. And then verse 12, God turns back to his people. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and passed away. Talking about Judah's enemies. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break the yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. Right? God restrains his judgment upon his people who had sinned. God will release them from their suffering and misery. And straight away, God once again turns back to the enemy. Verse 14, you will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in your temples of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. And then finally, one last flip. We finish chapter 1 with an address to God's people again. Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Celebration, festivals, joy, food, dancing, singing. We get this reference of the feet of one who brings good news. I mean, does that ring any bells, anyone? Right? Romans chapter 10, we see this verse quoted, talking about how wonderful it is when, when people bring us the gospel, who bring a, a message of forgiveness, of salvation. Now, as we look at the whole section as a whole, chapter 1, you can understand how some people might think that God doesn't make any sense, right? Is he loving and caring, or is he wrathful or judging? But here's a question for us all. Why do you think that chapter 1 of Nahum is structured this way on purpose, right? Why does a prophecy keep flip-flopping between judgment against God's enemies and also tender promises of salvation for God's own people here? Any ideas? Any thoughts? Yep. Yeah, I like that. I think um, that's exactly the point that I was going to make. Yeah, well done, Jane. So, the question I raised at the beginning, thank you, Jane, are these aspects of God's character actually incompatible? How do they fit in? Well, as Jane just said, these are actually just two different sides of the same coin, aren't they? Because God judges those who mistreat his people. And that is exactly how his people are saved, right? By judging Nineveh, then his people are saved. And so even if the reason why Judah was oppressed to begin with, right, they, they were punished because they had sinned against God, right, for Judah. But we can only have peace for the righteous or God's own people when the violent and wicked who have actually 
in their wickedness judge God's people when they are defeated. That's what it makes, uh, that, that was a very, very complicated thought. But let me just say that again. Um, we can only have peace, true peace, when the wicked and violent are defeated, are judged. Right? Judgment for Nineveh means God is merciful towards Judah. And again, this is a pattern that we see throughout history. Pharaoh and Egypt are judged. We get the ten plagues so that God's people can be set free from slavery. God saves his people again and again in the book of Judges by crushing the Philistines who oppress God's people. And how are we ultimately set free from our bondage of sin? Judgment and punishment for our sins occurs not on us, but it occurs on God's perfect sacrifice, his son, right? Salvation also always goes hand in hand with judgment. Same God, no inconsistencies. Okay, so, so last week we saw how God's judgment was a good thing simply because God is holy and righteous, right? With this abstract, God is just. Um, but those who delight in cruelty, who delight in torture, it, it is good that they are removed from the face of the earth. But this week, we see that God's judgment actually highlights God's compassion, mercy, and faithfulness towards his own people, right? The book of Nahum as a whole speaks of God's holy character. It speaks of God's goodness, in judgment. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, this sermon is a series on the prophets of Jonah and Nahum together, which means that I reckon these two books should actually be read together. Now, again, there's another question for you guys. Why do you think this might be the case? Right, the obvious one is that both prophets are talking about Nineveh, the enemy of God's people, but have you guys sort of noted any other signs that these two books, Jonah and Nahum, should actually be read together? Oops. <laughs> Any ideas? The first one was already given to you. Yes, Gary? Yep. <clears throat> yep, yep. So the topic, the, 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 the one being addressed, the nation is being addressed is Nineveh. Yep. Anything else? Something that I might have mentioned at the, the very beginning about a, something that's common between the both books that is referenced. Exodus 34. Okay, so there's that. Anything else? Any Notice anything else? Yes, so it's almost like a flip. Yeah. yeah, polar opposites between, yeah, yeah. Two sides of the same coin, that's right. It's just good to think about these things, right? Like, <clears throat> actually, a lot of the books of the Bible um, have sister books. When we read one, we're supposed to read it in conjunction with another. And so you might be wondering, you know, why, why is there one and two kings and then one and two chronicles, which sort of cover, like, a lot of the same material. Well, maybe you should read them together. Just a thought. Anyway, back to Jonah. Uh, so here's a few thoughts um, that I had. Uh, so the first one 
is that they both bring to the forefront the character of God, as, as we saw already, right? Uh, it's about self, God's self-declaration in uh, chapter 34 of Exodus. Uh, reading Jonah by itself, we get to see the extent of God's mercy. We see how compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love God is, whilst in Nahum, we see in terrifying detail how God is a jealous and avenging God, taking vengeance and is filled with wrath, but slow to anger, great in power, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Right? That's what Jane mentioned. And can you see the difference? Like, if they sort of smooshed both books together, you can easily just sort of like dilute both messages, right? You can sort of d dilute both messages and it doesn't really hit home strongly. But by separating out, thinking about each character of God separately, it's, it's a bit more powerful, isn't it? And by the time you combine it together. Uh, but I don't know, actually, if you noticed, but I actually, uh, this was new to me when I was uh, doing research on this. Uh, these are the only two books of the Bible that end with a question, right? I, I didn't know that. Do you know, remember what was the question that was at the end of Jonah? Sorry? Who can withstand the wrath? Oh, so that's uh, chapter one of Nahum. No, that's okay, that's okay. No, that's okay. Thanks for offering. But um, in Jonah, do you guys remember what, what, the, what the question was? Something to do with cows. That's not a joke, by the way. It's, yeah. Anyone remember? Should I not care for the 120,000 people in the city and many cattle? <laughs> Do you guys remember that? Right? Should I not care? And last week, what was the, what was the question that ends the book of Nahum? What's the question? Anyone know? Anyone got it in front of them? Who has not who has not felt your in your endless cruelty? Right? So maybe being the only two books in the Bible that end on a question, maybe that's supposed to get us to think, right? It's not trying to tell us something, right? Remember? But it's getting us to think. Should I not care for the 120,000 in Nineveh? Who has not suffered under your end of cruelty? Uh, there's also the irony in the prophet's names. So does anyone know what the, what the name Jonah means? Jonah means dove or peace, right? And can you see the irony in that? Jonah is a prophet of peace, and yet what does he want? The destruction of Nineveh. And does anyone know what Nahum stands for? What's, 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 what's Nahum mean? Nahum in Hebrew means comfort. What a comforting message. Nahum, you know, as we saw last week. But of course, there's a double meaning in that because through Jonah, he means peace. God does actually bring peace to Nineveh. And Nahum actually is a message of comfort, but of, for God's people, right? That their suffering will come to an end. Uh, so even though these styles, the books are so dramatically different, even though Jonah existed over a hundred years before Nahum, there are all these clues telling us that in some sense, Nahum is kind of like a sequel to Jonah. Now, if that's the case, then there must be a reason for the author linking these two writings together, right? Uh, I'm not going to ask this question. 
But let's just start thinking about why, why do you think Nahum is a fitting sequel to the book of Jonah? Well, the first one is this. Nahum answers Jonah's accusations of God, right? Nahum answers the question that was raised by, by Jonah. Because Jonah's accusation is that God isn't faithful. He isn't true. He isn't just. And right off the bat, Nahum confronts Jonah's accusation head on. From the first couple of verses in chapter 1, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Yes, God does care about justice. God is jealous for his people. God is jealous for his namesake. But also, God's mercy is actually highlighted. When we see these two books together, not only does it answer the question of whether or not God is just or not, but we can see God's mercy all the more, can't we? Because when we see Nahum, as we did last week, I heard, I was chatting to some of you guys um, a couple of weeks ago, um, and you, some of them, you guys mentioned, oh, I, I can understand. It is actually good for God to actually be so angry that God isn't just passively judging people, right? So we saw that in view of just how evil Nineveh was. Then when we look at Jonah, then God's compassion is even just mind-blowing, isn't it? Even for Nineveh, a society completely lacking in any redeeming features, even they can be forgiven and saved if they hear God's message and repent, if they humble themselves before God. And let me just be clear, this is not sweeping everything under the carpet, right? Sin will be dealt with, right? We just get a snapshot here. But in the grand scheme of things, we see that sin is dealt with. We see that in Nahum. We see that at the cross. But the point is, even Nineveh can be saved. Such is the mercy and compassion of our God. But when we look at the two books together, there is a sort of balance. There's sort of, I think a better word is not balance. It's, it's tension. There's a tension between the two sides of God that we see here. And the thing is, we need to hold both sides of God intention in our lives as well. <clears throat> because I think I think it's obvious, right? We definitely like to lean on one side of God's character more than the other, don't we? We love talking about the God who would forgive even Nick, wicked Nineveh. The, that God's salvation extends to all the earth and not just limited to one nation. As much as we, we love the message of God's unimaginable mercy and compassion, we also need to see that God's mercy God's patience has a limit. Now, to be sure, that limit far exceeds anything that we might ever deserve or can fathom, right? But Nahum tells us that there is a limit nonetheless. If we truly embrace God's mercy and compassion for the world, then we can't help but to warn those around us of God's coming wrath in order that they might hear the good news and be saved. I mean, let's just remember that for a moment, right? Let's just think about that for a moment. Because what do we miss if we only speak of God's mercy and love, but not his anger and wrath? Without God's wrath, then his mercy actually makes no sense, right? Mercy, judgment, and wrath are two sides of the same coin. Why would we need saving, right, if our sin isn't offensive to God? Who cares why is Jesus dying on the cross good for us? It doesn't make any sense. And so do we hold these two aspects of God in, in balance, in, in, in tension? Do we have 
a full picture of who God is. Without God's justice, without his wrath, his mercy makes no sense. Without God's mercy, then we're just all doomed. The gospel only makes sense when we, when we have both the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum. We can't have one without the other. So in a way, Jonah was kind of right, right? We, we like to pay Jonah out. We like to make fun of him, how ridiculous he was to be so disobedient. But in one sense, he was right, right? When looking at the evil city of Nineveh, Jonah was right to see that justice had to be executed. Jonah was right to be angry if Nineveh simply got away with their evil. But what Jonah got wrong was that he didn't allow for God's mercy and compassion to extend to others. He was only happy for God to show him mercy and compassion when he disobeyed God, but he didn't want to see others receiving that same benefit. He didn't see God's bigger plan of blessing the nations, that his plan of salvation extended to the whole earth. But also, what else did Jonah get wrong? What Jonah got wrong was that vengeance doesn't belong to us, but to the Lord, right? And this is just, again, the flip side of a statement that Jonah makes in chapter 2 of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's perhaps what we can learn from Jonah, is that we need to completely trust that salvation belongs to the Lord and which means vengeance also belongs to the Lord. Because when we can truly grasp that, then that's the only way that we can actually properly obey and live out God's call to Jonah. To preach to those around us, to obey Jesus' great commission to make disciples of all nations. And we need to grasp both sides of God's character, having a deep concern, a, a rightful anger even, at the evil in the world around us. But at the same time, while we are angry, while we have a deep concern, we also have an equally deep compassion and mercy on the world, hoping that they might repent and turn back to God. We can't have one without the other. Our God is far more merciful and compassionate than we can imagine. And our God is far more just and righteous than we can imagine. So let's pray to our awesome, almighty, and holy God. Oh Lord, you are so great. We, we can't reduce you down to a bunch of theological statements. We can't simply say that you are love. That cannot encapsulate how great and awesome you are. And so Father, we pray that we will be people who continue to wrestle with your revelation to us in your word, that we would think deeply about what they mean and how it impacts our lives, that we won't have a one-sided, one-dimensional understanding of you. But Father, we praise you for who you are because you are so much more than we can even, even imagine. And so Father, we pray that we will be people that would get deeper and deeper into our understanding and, and, and just see you clearer and clearer. But Lord, as a response to this message today, Father, we pray that we will be people who deeply care for what you care. That we won't 
just be complacently sitting there indifferently because your compassion, your justice drives us to move. So will you do that by your spirit replay amongst us today? In Jesus' name, amen.